Hey there, welcome to the Better Leaders podcast, the LinkedIn Live show. And today I'm talking to Arisha Kirani. Is that right? It's close, Arshia Kirani. <laughs> Arshia Kirani. Yes. So <laughs> thank you. And you reached out to us to have a conversation about resilience, which I think is an, an important topic, an interesting topic. There's a, a lot of numbers out there today with the psychological safety and about how the stress people are experiencing. And right now there is more people dying of you know, killing themselves uh, compared to a lot of other violent things that we are afraid of. And we should be more afraid of how we feel and to take care of that. So that's why I really enjoyed um, and looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So let's first go back to, because I, I always like to understand where people are coming from. Yeah. <laughs> and instead of just starting where they are now, you moved to New York when you were 17. Yes. What attracted you to New York so much? Yes. Yeah, so I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, which is a pretty small um, city. I, I grew up in the suburbs and I am Muslim and I'm South Asian. And um, I grew up with like a pretty close-knit, small Muslim community. My parents are were immigrants from, Indian, or from India. And um, so I grew up with basically two Muslim friends and they were both South Asian and Muslim. And I felt like I was really living this like double life um, where I was, you know, I had like my American or like my school friends. And then I had like my like home friends. And um, I think, you know, it was honestly in a lot of ways, it was really wonderful to have those two worlds. But I think especially as I was getting older, I was like really craving to be around more people who were like me um, and who were kind of grappling these multiple identities all in one place and didn't have to really like separate those identities depending on where they were. Um, and so, yeah, when I was in high school and I, when I was thinking about schools and what I wanted to do, um, I immediately was like, I just want to be in a really big place. <laughs> and so I was like applying to schools like you know, just big city schools like Chicago, DC, New York, and in, in California as well. And my parents actually, they didn't even know I applied to school in New York. For them, they were like, you're going to like, that's so dangerous. But I applied and I got like a scholarship and they were like, okay, maybe, maybe we'll go. Um, and it was actually really cool because we went and we did like a college visit there. And this is like not something also like if you're from like an immigrant family, like you might know, like, I don't know, we had, my parents never were like, we're going to go visit colleges. But I was like, so keen on going to New York, that they were like, fine, we can go see this one school. It was the only school we went and visited. When I went, it was so funny, because the day we did like the little tour and all that stuff. And we were in the student center. And on the stairs, there was a bake sale happening from the Muslim Student Association. Like MSA is like a very bit like it's like a national club um student organization at college campuses and um my parents were like amazed that like there were like 20 muslim students like literally just like on the stairs of like the student center and they were raising money for um 
a prayer space on campus. And so we ch- chatted with them, talked to them. And then like my dad was asking them where we could get like halal food. And they were like, oh, there's like a cart, like one block down. And so it was like so funny because like my parents, like it had like nothing to do with the academics or anything, but they saw like, they saw that community that I like never had growing up. Um, and like their answer, like very much was just like, they were really pushing actually then for me to go to that school, to NYU. And, um, it was like, that's really what I got there was like a, a really wonderful experience and like launched into a community where I felt very honestly, like belonging for the first time in my life. And there you choose to study Bachelor of Arts. Why was that your decision? Why did you go that route? Um, yeah, so I always thought I was going to work at like a nonprofit or something. I was really, I was really like socially oriented, even as like a, a kid in high school. And again, I'm South Asian. My family, um, a lot of my family is doctors. Um, this is like very common. My parents really wanted me to be a doctor. And I was like, I'm not going to be a doctor. And so my dad was like, okay, well, you could be a lawyer. Because <laughs> that's like kind of the second thing that you do. And so when I started at NYU, I really thought I was going to study political science. And when I got there, I hated it. I took like one or two classes. I like really did not like it. And um, then my second year of school, I really wanted to study like anthropology or history or something like that. So I was taking a lot of like arts classes. And um, my second year, it was my my second year of school and it was like the first two weeks of the semester. And I was sitting in like an econ 101 class and the market crashed. It was This was fall of 2007. Um, so like Lehman, Bear Stearns, like all these big banks started crashing. And so I was at, um, New York university, which is a huge school and they measure their success, honestly, largely on like how many kids get jobs after graduation. And so honestly, what I ended up studying was economics mostly because of the, which is like almost ironic, but like the, your, the counselors there at that time were very much like, look, you need to get like hard skills in your degree. Um, and so I think at that time there was like much more of an environment, like pushing, pushing students into degree, ironically degrees like finance and economics, because I think previously you could do like a journalism major and get a job at a bank, um, especially at a school like NYU, because like you could get a lot of internship experience and stuff. So yeah, it was kind of honestly, like, it's funny because like, I don't know. I, I don't think I was particularly good at economics in particular. I particularly love it. But what I did experience was my last year at school, I took a policy class as an elective. And it was like everything clicked because I took that policy class. And I remember being like, oh, this is what I thought like I was going to do when I was getting when I was taking classes in like political science. And it was like literally like my last, like my last year of school. But I think it was like kind of, you know, it really clicked for me. And so I ended up applying for a master's in policy and I did a dual degree um, at NYU where I did a Bachelor of the Arts and I stayed for an extra year and a half and I finished my master's in public administration where I then studied a lot of things that I didn't even know how to get access to, which was like, you know, basically social entrepreneurship, um, public finance, and then 
that's how I ended up going into affordable housing because I really love the intersection of affordable housing as a public-private partnership model where you're accomplishing social um, goals and like playing into social priorities that are for the betterment of society, but you're doing it through a lot of times private capital and private companies. So um, yeah, it's, it's funny. I mean, I haven't thought about these things in a little bit, but it kind of like you know, you kind of have this gut when you're a teenager and then it takes you a while to figure out how to like get to the place that, you know, that you have that feeling about for a while. So I'm curious because I'm not completely aware of how the U.S. is and it's, and it's different here in Europe and you've been in Europe. I think housing and, and I remember at some point you mentioned in your some of, I think it was in your bio saying that it's like a combination of profit and purpose um, is really interesting to you. Yeah. So if you look at these, if you look at affordable housing, if you look at housing in general, how do you feel about how the government should make sure that everybody has like a home to live in? Mm. Yeah, I I very personally believe it should be a basic human right. I mean, I think that's where like the U.S. and like the U.K. and, and Europe are really different. I mean, I think in the U.S. we definitely do not have it right. Um, and I think that's why it's it still is i mean but it was so fascinating to me because you know there's so many different social issues that you could arc yourself around it could be education it could be healthcare um for me what drew me to housing was here like in the us right all your social services are actually built and based around your address so if you don't have an address how do you get like even uh, food subsidies, how, like you can't go to a school, you can't, right? So you can't get your insurance, you can't get your health care. So I think for me, when I was thinking about it very, as a, at a very young age, I was like, housing is this is the center of it all. It's your home. It's really home base. And then everything you need operates in concentric circles around that. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely don't think the government has it right. I do think I mean, I loved my affordable housing career, though, because it really was cool. I mean, I've been working in social entrepreneurship now for like six, seven, or I guess like eight years. But, and it's like affordable housing doesn't fall into this like social entrepreneurship. But in a lot of ways, I think affordable housing is the most social, like my experience there was like the most social entrepreneurship forward space that I was in because I was at an organization and we were a double bottom line company. So we, our investors were in, often investing in us for compliance reasons. They had to reinvest a certain amount of capital because of federal compliance. And so in doing that, we never, ever, ever took a deal that didn't meet the social economics that we needed to meet, meaning it had to create X level of affordability in the area for Y level of returns. But as a as an organization, when we would present to our board, we would never, ever, ever do a deal that didn't meet our social requirements of building affordability in the area. But we would sometimes do a deal that was a little bit lower in returns. And I think that always sticks out to me because I think like that was it really the, for me, the experience I had in the organization that I was in, that was the most like real social entrepreneurship company that honestly I've ever worked for that wasn't my own. <laughs> well, then at some point you started your own company. 
Ah, yes. <laughs> that's when the fun began. <laughs> well, I'm, that's how you can say. But also, I think the advantage of, if you work in a large organization with this social impact is that also the impact yeah. is larger when you do start your own. Uh, yeah, you kind of you learn it. You learn it differently. Yeah. Yeah. How do you see now the difference be, between what you've learned in your jobs and in your own company? And we can talk about your company a bit later, but just go from that experience. Yeah, I think um, I remember when I was in grad school, I had this professor and in one of our classes, he was a real estate professor. And in one of our classes, he was like, how do you, he's like, how many of you in this room identify as an entrepreneur? And almost the whole class raised their hand and I did not. And um, I was like one of two students who didn't. And he called on me and he was like, why? He's like, Archie, why don't you think you're an entrepreneur? And I was like, I'm just not, I don't want to start my own business. And he was like, no, everybody here is an entrepreneur. I know it. <laughs> and I, it was so funny. I, I bring that up because like a year later, I literally started my own company. <laughs> I think what I, to answer your question more directly is that like, I never really identified as an entrepreneur until I found a problem that I was like so deeply passionate about. And I don't think I would have done it if I knew how hard it was. <laughs> and I felt that for a long time that I like really enjoyed working for small companies. So like when I was working for other people, I was like, wow, this is so cool. Like I worked at a very like small company, but it wasn't a startup. It was like my, my, both of my first two jobs were not startups by any means, but they were like one was like less than 30 people and one was like less than 10 people. So they were small, but they were more like intentionally small and established. Um, so I think I like, I don't know, I guess I just never really understood just how hard it was and how like, honestly, like crazy of a journey it is. And then when you're in it, you're like, oh my God, like your brain breaks kind of like every single day. So I do think you need like, it's funny because I've recently now started like two more businesses since then, but going back to this topic of resilience and resilience and burnout, like I burnt out so hard in my first company. And I think, you know, there's, it's almost like your question, you can see I'm struggling because it's such a big question. But I, I think when you are working for somebody else, no matter how hard you're working, you will never be thinking about all the things that you are thinking about when you run your own business. And like, yeah, you just, when you're running your own business, like you're just, at some point, it really just feels like you're on a treadmill, you know, and you're on, a, you're both sprinting and marathoning all at the same time, which for me personally, I mean, even when I'm working at high stress jobs, at some point, I'm just like, this is not my, like, no one's going to die if I don't do this. But when it's your own company, you, you're fearing for your livelihood. And then when you're employing people, you're fearing for their livelihood too. So you know, even though no one's going to die, like if you, you know, if I don't do my marketing work today, somebody might not get paid or I might not get paid. Um, and that that is a really different mindset to be in than when you're working for somebody at a company, even at a high stress job. Did you stay in New York after you finished your education? Yes. So I... Uh, stayed there for like eight more years. So I was in New York for t like 12, almost 13 years, actually. Yeah. I loved New York so much. I, um, yeah, I was there. I, so I worked in 
private real estate and then affordable housing for about like six-ish years, six or seven years. And then my second half, I was like working in um, – I don't know, the, the numbers are blurry because basically when I had my full-time job, I had like started my side, my first company. So I was kind of like doing nights and weekends on my side gig for like a year and a half of like while I had a full-time job. So the lines – I'm like feel like I'm really aging myself here, but <laughs> it's like really blurry a little bit on like when everything ended and began. But yeah, so I – honestly, it's – you know, I think it, it's a little bit different now, but I started my first company in 2015 and um, it was an e-commerce apparel company and being in New York was extremely like very important to that experience. Like I don't, there's so many reasons why I don't think I would have been able to do it or I wouldn't have even ideated what I was doing if I wasn't living in New York. So I know the world has really gone remote now, but in at that time, um, being in like the really vibrant like New York startup community was like so impactful for the work that I was doing. And like I, you know, I just shared with you, I was working in affordable housing and so I was working on the finance side. So my job was to like sit and be in Excel all day long. Um, but I was starting an apparel company. And so for me, I was like, I had proximity to factories, to the garment district to a whole fashion and, and startup ecosystem um, where I could go and really like feel, you know, fabrics and understand and learn on the ground. Um, it was a much easier and um, possible experience um, being in New York and starting that, that company. And I can also imagine it, that's why I, the idea came with me for this question was it's a, it's an expensive city to live in. So also you need more money to stay alive like you yeah. mentioned, uh, so you need more revenue coming in and all these things to really just have the bare minimum of the company to just yes. make sure that you just keep running every day. Yes. So it's so funny. Well, now I, I do leadership coaching and I was literally just speaking with one of my clients yesterday about this, but, you know, there's kind of this idea that if you're serious about your startup, you're going to quit and go all in. And I fundamentally disagree with that. I think yes, at some point, but I think that that is the worst, worst, worst advice I ever received as an entrepreneur and that anybody could give an entrepreneur. When you're starting a business, you have to be strategic and you have to like make sure your whole life doesn't fall apart. So for me, I, and that's what I'm saying, I like really double dipped, like meaning I was working at a job and was working on my business and like, sure, yes, did things go like move a little bit more slowly? Yes, but like I used that 18 months to make a financial plan. So I was really young. I was like 26 when I started my company. So I was like, okay, here's how much I have in my savings. Here's how much I have to pay in rent. Like I made like the most granular budget for my personal life I could ever make. I was like, I'm going to eat out with my friends once a week. Like, you know, I, you know, I'm going to cancel my gym membership. I will only run outside. Like, every, you know what I mean? Just like kind of figuring out where I'm going to take lunch every single day to work. Like, I remember I had like this, like, I would treat myself to one coffee a week. Like one latte was like my treat of like one day I'm going to go and like buy a coffee. But I really had to think about those things. And being at a full-time job, I was able to do that because I was like, okay, here's how much I have in my savings and here are my financial commitments and here's how much I can put towards my my company. And the thing is, is that when I was working at a job, I was able to 
put my in like salary, like put parts of my salary into paying contractors for skills that I didn't have. And I couldn't have done that if I didn't have a full-time job, you know? And then even after that, after I quit, I continued to consult for my old affordable housing company. And I was doing a lot of like really random consulting gigs because to your point, like you have to make ends meet. And yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's a really big privilege for an entrepreneur to just be an entrepreneur, especially when you're young. You kind of have to be crafty about how you make your money. I remember there was a period of time I was like editing resumes for like 20 bucks a pop, you know, or like I was doing the most random stuff. I was doing like random brand work for other apparel brands where I would go and like help them set up their um, events in person, like just be like a like almost, you know, just like a, an admin or operational person. I was doing like super random stuff just to like, yeah, because I, I would think about it, be like, okay, I could, you know, go out to dinner with my friends today or I could pay for an hour of contract work. And like when you're making those kinds of decisions as an entrepreneur, you're going to be like, well, I'm going to put that money into my company as much as I can. So yeah, I'll go do an errand for somebody, but I can pay for a designer to do a technical job that I don't know how to do. I can imagine that a period like that is really stressful. You have a job, you need all these things, you know, you think about money. What did you learn about resilience during that period? I think, you know, and this is where it really comes back to identity, I think, and kind of that, even that where we opened the conversation of, I grew up in an immigrant household in the U.S. and I didn't really, I never realized it, but my parents were both entrepreneurs. Like I, they never called, like that was not really a word that, that, you know, at the time, like they didn't call themselves like founders or anything, but you know, well, my, my mom is a doctor and she was running her own medical practice and my dad has always worked for himself. And so he is an accountant by trade. So he was running my mom's medical practice from an accounting perspective. And then he um, has own construction business. And I, uh, never, not once, I promise you or no, like not once in my life did I ever think, well, my parents run their own business until I started running my own business. I was like, oh, my parents have been doing this forever. <laughs> and it's like kind of crazy how it just like clicks that so, you know, you're, and, and, and it was also like, how can I be so oblivious to this? Like, of course they're, you know, they've both never worked for people. Yeah. I think part of resilience is just like, trying something until something starts to work. Um, and I think because I was, I grew up in this household that highly valued hard work and education above everything. Like I remember my, we used to really tease my dad a lot, especially like when I was in high school, but he used to go to like two different grocery stores to like save like three cents on a gallon of milk. And this is just like a, you know, South Asian dad thing. And me and my friends, we would like joke about it all the time. Like, but only like my Muslim South Asian friends. Like I would never talk to like my American friends about this, but we'd be like, all of our dads or our moms would do these like weird little things. And, you know, when I was in high school, I remember my sister and I would be like, dad, like you're, you know, by the time you turn on the gas, like turn off the gas, like, are you even saving the three cents, you know? But, um, you know, I think like, what, what I'm trying to build a connection between is like for me, resilience and craftiness have always like been really hand in hand. And I really didn't appreciate that three cent saving until I realized like 
wow, I'm in a position of like making trade-offs, very active trade-offs all the time. And our parents, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not first generation American. Like I realized that that's like, that's privilege, right? Is like sometimes privilege, privilege is also like getting to choose to be resilient as opposed to having to be resilient, right? And my parents really had to be resilient in a different way to build a whole new world here um, for us and even allow me the privilege to to build a business. Um, you know, I, I think, yeah, and, and I think the second part of that, and I think is very, very key actually to my story is I shouldn't say like it was all just my savings and you know, hard work. Um, I did a Kickstarter campaign and, um, that's a, it's a crowdfunding campaign as probably a lot of you all know. Uh, and that was a game changer. I mean, that also, you know, without being in New York, I never would have started this business. I don't think. And without being in, without like doing a a Kickstarter, I never would have really had the confidence to like go forward with my business. Um, my Kickstarter, like it gave us, uh, my goal was to raise $10,000 and we raised $27,000 and we did no paid marketing or anything. This was all organic. So kind of, again, going back to like being resilient is like, I remember I joined like a product group when I was um, first starting my business. And uh, one of the, that's, you know, I kind of learned about kick, like there was a, I had mentioned this to a friend and a friend kind of helped me figure out what a Kickstarter was. But in my product group, there were people who had done like million dollar Kickstarters. And I remember talking to them and they were like, oh, you can like hire agencies basically that like run your Kickstarter for you. They take a huge cut, right? It's like a 12%, sometimes even like up to 20% between all your fees um, of a cut, but you've done a million dollars, right? And then you can use that, like, oh, sold out on Kickstarter, a million dollar Kickstarter, da, da, da. it's like a whole sub brand. Um, one, that was very new and like scary to me because I was like, what? The, oh my God, that's crazy. Two, I was like, for me, I was, we didn't really talk about the product, but it was an active wear brand for Muslim women. And I was trying to test if there's a market. So I was like, there's no point in paying an agency whose job is to like get it done. Like I need to do this like the really organic way to see if there's a market because there was no, like no brand like mine at that time. And so when I did my Kickstarter, we like, I literally was just being really like one, I think resilience, you have to be able to put yourself out there and get rejected. Like people told me I was crazy all the time. Like I remember there was like a Muslim guy who was like an NYU alum and I reached out to him and he'd helped me a lot with job stuff earlier in my career and I really trusted him. And I was like, hey, like, I'm, I'm, you know, I want to do this thing. And I remember he like was so – he was really doing this earnestly. But he he bought me coffee and we were sitting there. And he was like, you know, Arshi, like I've really seen you grow up. And, I've, you know, I've really, you know, watched you like help – you know, I've seen you like flourish in your career. And I'm going to tell you like this is just going to be a little hijab company for Muslim women. Like you're this isn't going to go anywhere. Like you're shooting yourself in the foot here. And I don't think I've ever been so angry. Like, I was so upset. And I remember that day I was like, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm going to go all out, you know? And for our Kickstarter, I literally was, like, writing my story. And I was just, like, tweeting at reporters. I was finding emails, like, all over the internet. And finally, one reporter during our Kickstarter picked us up. It was Huff- it was on the Huffington Post page in their religion section. And they did a profile on my, on my brand. And 
that day our Kickstarter sold out. Like we hit our goal. It was like day nine and we still had 20 more days of our Kickstarter. And by the end of our, just our Kickstarter, we were featured on Huffington Post, not just religion, but like general Huffington Post, Upworthy, Al Jazeera. And we were reached out to by like ABC News, like right after our Kickstarter ended. So yeah, it's, you know, resilience is trying over and over again, I think, even when people tell you you're doing something wild. Um, And I think a lot of times what that really means is that you have vision and you can see something that other people can't. Right. So you explained your parents needed to have resilience and you, well, they actually gifted it to you so that, you know, they made it possible for you to be resilient, to choose to be resilient. How do you experience today your faith in relationship to resilience in the U.S.? Ooh, <laughs> that's a tricky question for a tricky time in history <laughs> right now. I I don't know the history, so just yeah, make me smarter. Yeah, well, I mean, so for context, you know, for anybody watching this live, it's November 10th, 2023. And I don't want to make this a very political conversation, but at the same time, we are five weeks, roughly five weeks into a genocide on Palestine. And um, I'm Muslim and I'm South Asian. I'm not Palestinian, but I'm Muslim. And me and my community, we are really going through a lot right now. Um, You know, we have family, we have friends, we have coworkers, colleagues, you know, who work in advocacy media, who work in Palestine, who work in Gaza. Um, and I think the tie-in here is that I uh, now work in leadership coaching for startups. And I remember when this first started, uh, I went on my LinkedIn and all over my LinkedIn, there were all these founders who had like, I stand with Israel hashtags all on LinkedIn, like not even on Instagram, but in a professional space. And I had just come finished speaking at a retreat for students. And this is like when this, these events started unfolding and I posted something on LinkedIn being like, you know, it's really wonderful to see this hope in the world with these students, even though my heart has been with Palestine over the last couple of days, multiple of my Muslim friends, Palestinian and not, reached out to me and told me to take it down. And they told me I'm shooting myself again in the foot again. They were like, you are a leadership coach in the founder space and you need, you're starting out. Like I've, you know, it's a relatively new thing that I'm doing. And they were like, you are you can't say this out loud. You just can't. And I was so upset because I was like, well, I'm seeing it all over my LinkedIn. Why can't I say it? You know? And they were like, it's different for us. And for about a week, I just like silently fumed to myself and like didn't say anything. And, um, and I really had to go back to the drawing board and be like, what are the risks here? And like, what are the risks I care about? And, and like, that are just external. And after a week, I just was like, whatever. And I started posting all over my Instagram because I was like, this is insane. Like I, the reason, 
And the reason I started doing that is because I'm a Muslim brown woman in the U.S. And over the last 12 years of my career, I have worked in extremely white-centric spaces. I wear hijab and I have always been the odd one out in the room. And what I realized was two things. One, because I wear hijab, politics follow me into the room regardless of what I'm saying or not saying. People have assumptions. People have biases. I know for a fact at one of the companies I've worked for the last couple of years, I was like a diversity hire for them. Like, you know, I just, I know it like based on what I saw happen in the DI space, you know? And then second of all, I realized like, well, this is why I work for myself. I work for myself because I no longer want to be aligned with companies that don't have the values that I have. And when we're talking about resilience in the Muslim community, in my own network, my family, my friends have, because they have gone to protests for Palestine, because they have posted about Palestine, have been threatened with their jobs, their their pensions. One of my friends from college, he literally runs his own medical practice in like a very Jewish community. And somebody saw something on his private Instagram and basically tried to get him fired, not knowing it was his own medical practice, you know, and he like, and they went all on the internet, like on Yelp, on all these like doctor review sites and said he was anti-Semitic. And he was like, I've worked in a Jewish community for like my whole career and it's my practice. And like, none of this has ever happened. I don't know. I mean, I guess it is political. You know, I think it's, it's very challenging because it's, we're in a world now where keeping politics and work separate are no longer possible. It's just not possible. And I remember even as like a, as a Muslim woman, when I was running, when I was doing my supply chain and when I was figuring out where to produce, um, I remember there were factory options in Israel and I was like, I'm not going to make active wear hijabs for Muslim people in settler colonies. Like that is a decision that I have the right to make and I'm not going to do that. It doesn't make sense. As I move forward in my career and, and in this environment, it's, I think being resilient is being, being resilient as a Muslim, as an American is like using your voice and even understanding like what you're really losing because I think I really had to have a conversation with myself of if I'm fighting for equal rights for my own community and somebody doesn't want to work with me because of that, then I also don't want to work with them, right? Regardless of whether I say this out loud or not, our value systems are not in alignment and that's yeah, okay. Hmm. That's why I brought this topic up, by the way. So I'm <laughs> glad you just explained. And I'm wondering now with this recent experience and the experience that you have now in the coaching, the leadership coaching, how do you help leaders in your field to become more resilient with the expertise that you have now, with the experiences that you have now? Yes. Yeah, so my lens of coaching is around narrative. So 
um, there's a lot of different ways I think that you can coach and be coached. And I think for me, a lot of what I have learned is that the more that the more you can lean into your own identity and your personal strengths, the better you're going to be at anything. The tricky part comes with branding it. And I think for me, when I was starting my first company, it was an active company. I leaned in so deeply into my Muslim identity, you know, and I think it took us a little, it took me a little bit of time to figure out how to like talk about it. I think once I figured, once I like, once I got coached on how to talk about it, I like flirt, like it turned it, that's the day it turned into a brand where it wasn't just me talking about my experience, but it was like, I want to build a space for Muslim women that is inclusive and empowering. And then I could start using language that broader identities could fall into. I definitely have talked a lot about this company, I think also because it's top of mind given, I think, what is going on in the world today. But since then, um, so my my brand took a pause in 2020. And since then, I have worked at a marketing agency. And then I went in-house and worked for a fintech brand as the head of marketing. What I really realized, I think, and what I, what I learned was that our leadership skills, the further you get in your career are really seen as like soft skills. Like that's how, you know, that's how people see them. Like even when you're at companies, people literally call your HR, they call it the cost center, you know. Um, When you're on a revenue generating team, like I reported into the strategy team um, at the marketing agency and it's like, right, we were, even as our team was called cost, like we have to always justify our cost. And so there's like a negative connotation to that. And I think for for me, what I really work with a lot of leaders on is from turn like is is actually even changing the story of like let's turn that cost into revenue, right? Like these people are people who are really smart and are really have identities and have their own stories and their own motivations of working with you and for you. So what I do a lot with leaders, whether it's key decision makers working for founders or whether it's founders themselves, I really work with them on how do personal stories of different people at the companies actually align and build into values that can then coincide with company values. And what I think that looks like a lot is reframing. It's a lot of reframing and getting to, again, for me, I love communication. I love, like, I love words. I take words very, very seriously. And so I think a lot of times what I find is like the most friction that happens at organizations is because people aren't speaking the same language, even though they want the same thing. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's really, you know, where I uh, really enjoy working with people. And I think a lot of times, you know, people who are not the founder they don't always have like, but they are key decision makers at organizations. They don't always have access to, or maybe not access, but they don't always have like someone telling them that their personal why matters. And so I think it's hard for them sometimes to like align their personal why with the company's why. Um, And so again, I think that that is really important. Like as you grow your company to have those whys, because the more those whys are aligned and the more you can say those whys are aligned, then those people who are cost for you actually then become way more empowered to 
build out your business and generate revenue for you. Um, and then they can subsequently hire those people, right? That can have that have those skill sets that you need as an executive of a company to bring your vision to life. Cause you can't, you don't have every single skill set that you need. Um, and so, yeah, I think for me, it really, everything comes down to storytelling and, and building a cohesive narrative for people and companies. Yeah. And I want to close it down, but I also don't want to forget to mention that for having conversations, so right. having conversations, so to talking to other people, that's where you learn the most, not being yes. like opposites and just shouting at each other, but having conversations on any topic, how difficult it may be. That's the only resolution, the only solution towards, well, the next step, the next idea, the next thing to peace even, right? So, yeah. but also for resilience as if you, if you, as a leader in an organization feel a lot of stress and if you have in the team with a lot of stress, yeah. the only way to go at it is to have more conversations yeah. and to find out what's really going on with you and with the, with the people that you're working with, yes. but also even with the, with your leaders, right? With your managers to have a conversation with them to know what's going on with, on their side so that you also understand what's going on. Like you just mentioned, when you have something, your own business, you understand that there's so much more that you aren't aware of if you are an employee. Yes. Yes, because there's just, it's just a broader view, right? It's a broader view of how everything is connecting. And yeah, I think, yeah, and I, I know we're wrapping up here. I, and I think this is a great note to, to end on is that honestly, when I moved on from my first business and I transitioned into being an employee again at a marketing agency, I got to this agency and I was like infiltrated with all this information. I was like, oh my gosh, like this is how agencies work. This is how marketing works. And it was like, it clicked one day where I was like, wow, as a founder, I didn't even know what I didn't know. And that realization made me also just take this giant step back in life, which is just like, I never know what I don't know, ever. In the news, in for someone's life, in a company, like you never know what you don't know. And it sounds so simple, but I think conversations, asking difficult questions, having difficult conversations, you know, my therapist always tells me, she always tells me, your feelings are data points. They are information. So if a conversation is difficult at work, what about it is difficult? Why does it feel difficult? And that's probably something that you as a leader should sit with and understand because something that's difficult might always be difficult, but maybe it's also something you can learn and it doesn't always have to be. Um, and that, I think, really tying it up is like that is resilience. Resilience is not just sitting with discomfort. And I think there's a lot of emphasis on it's okay to be uncomfortable, sit with it. And for me, I think that elevating leadership is one step further of sit with it. Okay. But then talk about it, understand and dissect the discomfort to take you to the next step to see how you can really break down systematically what that discomfort is coming from or where that's coming from. Yeah. And I agree completely. And I would say also have the conversation with the other party that, that yes. makes you feel uncomfortable because that then you can learn um, what's going on in their space or their culture or their world so that you also um, try to understand where they are coming from, right? So, well, Arsha, 
it was wonderful talking to you for the people who um watch the video or just follow us live the on the screen right now there's a qr code that directly goes to your website so that's good that's i think is an easy access to you to you know to to get to know you to find you to connect with you there's also your instagram and linkedin profile links are around that too so if you want to go that route you can do that too I think the last part, of course, is a difficult at the moment. There's so much stress around it with what's going on in Israel and in Palestine, uh, Palestine. And so, but if we don't talk about it, it 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 just stays very stressful, and and we don't change it. Right? We don't. Yeah. And I think with you speaking up and saying this, um, of course, it, you know, you may sh shoot yourself in the foot, but also it will track the people that really agree with you, that really yeah. um, find you, that really think that this is important too. And by just sharing how you feel about these things makes other people easier to connect with you. And I think that's important yeah. too. It's not, it's not, I don't think it's wise to always be like the great person and just be in the middle and just, yeah. although I, I feel I often do that still, but I like having these conversations like with you right now to um to you know to investigate the other part too. Yeah, I I really appreciate that. Yeah, and yeah, and and I think it's, you know, as a leader, if I'm going to position myself very honestly as a leader, as a leadership coach, like I also have to just be that person and I think that's why silence from leadership feels so deafening right now because silence is loud it's deafening and i think in in this space and if we're talking about high eq and if we're talking about human development and difficult conversations like for me for my community for my friends like we are shells of people you know we right now like we get together we only talk about politics like is the only thing that we do and you know we and it's we were taught like a couple of my friends and I we were talking we were like we don't even know how somebody could just be living and like going out to dinner or having a Halloween costume because like every single one of us is just we work and we try our best to like decompartmentalize and then we were we just advocate like our weekends everything is around this cause and it 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 almost feels impossible to to show up without having it there. It's like it feels like a, it's a cloud, right? That's following us into every single thing that we're doing. And yeah, and I, I appreciate you saying that, and even asking, like going there and taking the conversation um, to that place that you knew could be maybe challenging. Because yeah, we are. I don't know how else to say it, but we. I this feels like unlike anything I have experienced ever. And that's me being a post 9-11 Muslim American. And this feels so, I don't know, this feels worse somehow. And yeah, it's, it really is. It's a, it's a question on identity and, you know, it's kind of that same thing of what we, what we spoke about earlier, which is like people like me, we are deciding between is using our voice also ruining my own livelihood or is there a point of having a life a livelihood if i'm not using my voice and these are really the decisions that we are making as leaders in our our own lives mm -hmm. thank you very much um for you watching the listening right now 
Um, we will as usually be back next Friday at 9 a.m. Central Time or 4 p.m. Central European Time or 7 a.m. <laughs> your time. California, <laughs> yep. <laughs> Early <laughs> <laughs> so the the post of this with the audio version and the video version will be up by Monday on betterhumans.me. Well, thank you so much for having me today. I know it was so wonderful to connect and have this conversation bright and early for me and closing out the week for you. So I really appreciate your time and questions and attention and energy, everything. Thank you.